0: Welcome to Hartford HealthCare's podcast series, Coping Through COVID. I'm Anne Rondepierre. Our guest today is Dr. David Tolan, Director of the Anxiety Disorders Center at the Institute of Living. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Tolan. This series is focused on our frontline people who, in many cases, are caring for patients who are or who may be infected, and they are no doubt experiencing stress and anxiety as a result. Um, But first, Dr. Tolan, can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Sure, happy to, and thanks for having me here. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I'm director of a joint clinical and research and training program that specifically focuses on understanding and helping people with anxiety-related disorders, and that includes things like um, obsessive-compulsive kinds of problems and panic attacks and social fears and chronic worries and, and all the things that go around with anxiety-related issues. Those are the things that we study and treat.
0: Well, I can only imagine in that field right now, you must be seeing an uptick in those types of disorders under the unprecedented circumstances.
1: Well, we're certainly seeing that there is no shortage of anxiety to go around. Um, lots of people are feeling anxious um, with this pandemic, but it's not clear yet whether that's going to translate to a real increase in psychiatric disorders, specifically, you know, the anxiety disorders. So, you know, like everybody experiences anxiety from time to time, and sometimes that anxiety can be quite strong we usually don't think of it as being an anxiety disorder until it gets to the point where it starts to interfere with a person's ability to function. When your ability to work is compromised, when your ability to socialize is compromised because of your emotions, when your ability to engage with your family is compromised, those are the the warning signs that we really look for here.
0: Now, can you tell us a bit about the science behind anxiety? What, what happens to us in our mind, our body, when mm-hmm. stress or anxiety kicks in?
1: Sure. Well, from a, a biological perspective, this all begins in the brain. And there is a region of the brain, actually a cluster of regions of the, the brain, um, that uh, primarily involve uh, a region called the amygdala, that are responsible for sounding the alarm. They are kind of the threat detectors of the brain, and they signal to us that something is wrong or something is dangerous or threatening. Balancing that out are the frontal lobes of the brain, which usually help us reason it through and think rationally, so that it doesn't become uh, a major anxiety episode. Um, But if that signal from the amygdala is really strong, or if the frontal lobes of the brain aren't inhibiting the signal very well, then there's this cascade of biological events that's referred to as the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal or HPA axis, which is a a cascade of of neurochemicals and hormones that goes from the brain all the way down to the adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands sit on top of the kidneys and their job is to secrete adrenaline into the bloodstream. So when the brain detects a threat and if that threat signal goes unchecked by the frontal lobes, it triggers the adrenal glands to secrete adrenaline into the bloodstream. And when adrenaline hits the bloodstream, we get what is sometimes referred to as the fight, flight, or freeze response. The sympathetic nervous system is the technical term for it. But this is where the body is mobilizing for threat, and so the idea is that you're trying to, your body is trying to get oxygenated blood to the big running muscles of the body, and so the way that it does that is it increases your heart rate, it increases your respiration rate, it reroutes blood circulation away from things like the digestive system over to the muscles, um, and so on. And all of those are associated with the symptoms that we sometimes describe as being stress or anxiety.
0: Now, that's interesting, that surge of adrenaline, which mm-hmm. is there for a reason, and it could certainly be helpful in a fight or flight situation. What about, mm-hmm. it, how prolonged could that be in a situation ah. like this?
1: Well, that's a really good question. Um, You know, one of the things that we find is that the big surge of adrenaline is not permanent. In fact, as soon as the adrenaline surges, um, there are other biological effects taking place in the body whose job it is to metabolize that adrenaline and get you back to normal. But that being said, so this is why, for example, when some people have uh, anxiety attacks or panic attacks, This is one of the reasons why a panic attack never lasts forever. Nobody has ever panicked for the rest of their lives. It is a short-term effect. That being said, some people, through their own thinking, can consistently detect threat after threat after threat, and as a result of that, they can start to put themselves in kind of a chronically aroused state. So they're not necessarily having a full-blown panic attack, but they're feeling a heightened level of anxiety and stress, and that can go on for quite some time.
0: Just hearing you describe it sounds exhausting, both mentally and physically.
1: It really can be exhausting to have a heightened anxiety level over a prolonged period of time, and that's one of the reasons why When we talk to people who are struggling with anxiety disorders, fatigue and impaired concentration and other things that are symptoms of exhaustion are right up there at the top of the list of what they experience.
0: Is there a difference between stress and anxiety?
1: Well, stress, the the way that, that, that I tend to think of it is that stress is the environmental circumstance surrounding the person. And anxiety is one potential response that a person can have to stress. So everybody experiences stress and stressors. And then a subgroup of people will experience that as anxiety. When they experience anxiety, it it involves things like constantly worrying, not being able to switch your brain off, uh, sometimes having anxiety attacks, sometimes being fearful and avoidant of things. So those are the things that we look for to when we call it anxiety.
0: Back to our front line. Our first responders and healthcare workers are no strangers to stress. You'll hear a lot of them say, Hey, this is what I signed up for, or they feel a, mm-hmm. a special calling. But in this pandemic mm-hmm. situation, it's bound to put them at risk of even higher levels of stress than they're used to.
1: Certainly healthcare workers are not immune to the effects of stress. And um, and we know that some healthcare workers can burn out uh, under conditions of prolonged stress. I do think that one resiliency factor that a lot of healthcare workers have is that they have a job and they have something meaningful to do in the midst of this pandemic. And it turns out that actually having some meaningful place to put your attention is one of the best things that you can do to stave off the effects of prolonged anxiety.
0: And we we touched on this a little bit before, Doctor, but Mm -hmm. the majority of our frontline workers are then in that situation of potential stress on a daily basis. And Mm -hmm. uh, you did touch on prolonged stress or anxiety before, but what symptoms might we be on the lookout for?
1: So some things that we would look for, and and, and it, it comes back biologically to that fight, flight, or freeze response. You know, most people say that stress interferes at least some of the time with their lives. But the things that we would want to really look for are symptoms of prolonged stress like headaches, high blood pressure, chest pain, heart palpitations, skin rashes, loss of sleep, irritability, fatigue, inability to concentrate. I mean, that's a short list, but Uh, You know, the, the list of potential stress symptoms goes on and on and on, but essentially the things that I really look for when I'm trying to evaluate how stressed out or anxious somebody is, is how well are they functioning? Are they continuing to do their job well? Are they continuing to interact with other people well? Are they continuing to engage with their family well? Or is their functioning starting to break down? When the functioning starts to break down, that to me is the big warning sign that the person really needs to do something to get their anxiety in check.
0: So important because the person, the individual who might be suffering from prolonged stress or anxiety Mm -hmm. might not necessarily be aware of their own (laughs) symptoms, but perhaps their family members or colleagues could help keep an eye out on their behalf.
1: You know, that's a really good point that you raise, which is that that this stress response that we all have um, may or may not be something that is obvious to us, but it could be obvious to the people around us. And so it is important to be open to hearing that message from people.
0: Well, many of us try not to burden friends or family members with our own fear or anxiety under normal circumstances, but these are unprecedented times. How much should we share?
1: These are unprecedented times, and one of the really tricky elements is that the loved ones that you may want to share your concerns with are also typically experiencing significant concerns of their own, so everybody is under stress. Now, that doesn't mean don't talk about it, but it, what it does mean is, is two things. One, I think, is know your audience. That is, there are things that you might share with an adult that are probably not appropriate to share with a child. And two, be sure to ask as well as tell. It's not just about you sharing your concerns with your loved ones, but you also wanna make sure that you ask them, how are you holding up? So that it becomes a two-way discussion.
0: So doctor, what can we do? Are there any quick fixes for someone who might be mid-shift or perhaps on their way home to their family? Well, I, I
1: do think there's a lot that, that a person can do to manage feelings of stress and anxiety. And, and we can think of those strategies, and there's a lot of them, as involving the mind, the body, and behavior. When we think about anxiety management strategies that involve the mind, the first, especially in this pandemic, is accepting the fact that you can't control everything. There are some things that you can control. For example, you can control whether you abide by the CDC guidelines, whether you practice safe physical distancing, whether you wash your hands, etc. And there are aspects of this that are just going to be out of your control. And getting your head around that is an important piece of it. Making sure that you do your best rather than try to get everything perfect. You know, understand that you're human and that, All humans are fallible. Try to keep up a positive attitude. You know, make an effort to notice when you are thinking in a negative manner and try to shift your thinking to something that is, if not upbeat, at least more realistic rather than bogging down into negativity. When we think about anxiety management strategies that involve the body, watch out for alcohol and caffeine. They can aggravate anxiety disorder. Drink water instead. Eat right. Eat well-balanced meals. It's easy to start grazing when you're cooped up at home. Make sure that you get enough sleep. Make sure that you get enough exercise. Even though the gyms are closed, it's important to do it. And then finally, regarding actions or behaviors, some things that we can do would be slow down your breathing. Focus on the breath coming in and out without necessarily trying to take big gulps of air. I often encourage people to count in for four seconds and out for six seconds as they breathe. The idea is to slow your breathing down, which can slow down your physiology. I encourage people to take timeouts whenever they need to, to practice yoga, listen to music, meditate, do a relaxation strategy, whatever works for you. I also encourage people to do something proactive for their community. It's easy to become self-absorbed when we start feeling stressed and anxious. Try to find some way that you can help out. And then finally, of course, the, 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 the final recommendation is that if it feels like stress and anxiety are getting out of hand, talk to somebody. Talk to a loved one, talk to your doctor, or talk to a, a, an anxiety professional.
0: Those are some very helpful self-care strategies. When do we know that it is time to talk to a professional and maybe take a different route?
1: Well, I, I certainly encourage everybody to try to manage their stress and anxiety on their own as best they can, because most of the time we can get this under control using a, if we have a good plan in place. But if it turns out that your best efforts don't seem to be working and it seems like the anxiety or stress is causing a problem in your capacity to function in one or more important areas of your life, then it really is time to talk to a professional. And there's two ways that you can go. Um, The first is what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a form of counseling that is designed to help people address unhelpful behavior patterns and unhelpful patterns of thinking to help them cope better with stress, the other is medication, and some people benefit from taking uh, anti-anxiety or even antidepressant medications when they find that their anxiety has gone out of control. The data tells us that both of those strategies are effective, probably equally so. So it becomes an, an, a matter of personal choice.
0: Yes, and I imagine that trying to self-medicate as some do, maybe without even knowing, not consciously, with alcohol or recreational drugs would be a concern as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's really one of the the big red flags, I think, that that suggests that maybe you do need to to, um, talk to somebody, is if you find that you are self-medicating your anxiety with alcohol or other drugs um, as a way of becoming numb, uh, that not only doesn't really work very well in the long term, but it also can start to create problems of its own. And so if you find that you are self-medicating as a way of controlling your anxiety, that might be a sign that it's time to talk to a professional.
0: I'm hearing more and more concerns about not just for our front line, but for all of us and the quarantine situation where recreational drinking can easily get out of hand.
1: It is important to recognize that a lot of people are at home with not much to do, and they're feeling stressed, and they're feeling anxious, and so many of them will turn to excessive use of alcohol or drugs as a way of coping with that anxiety, but that's really a a very unhelpful coping strategy.
0: Right, and could leave us with lasting effects, which kind of transitions nicely into my next question. What about when this is all over and we get back to the new Mm -hmm. normal, is PTSD a concern? Yeah,
1: I I do think that it's it's important for us to pay attention, especially to the most vulnerable among us. And by the most vulnerable, when it comes to mental health, what I mean are the people that already have a pre-existing mental health concern. So people that have a psychiatric disorder, be it an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder or a major mental illness um, or a substance use disorder, those are the people that I worry about the most uh, now and in the future. For the rest of us, I think that people tend to be more resilient than we give them credit for. Most of us, I suspect, are going to bounce back and be relatively okay, psychologically speaking, when this is all
0: over. Dr. Tolan, that is music to my ears, and I'm sure everyone else listening, and I think that's a a great positive note to end on. Terrific. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. If you or someone you love is in need of emotional support, help is available. Call your existing provider for a virtual visit or leave a message at 888-984-2408, and we will call you back. Thanks for listening to Hartford HealthCare's podcast series, Coping Through COVID.